Okay, welcome back to another uh, Nix Moderator Prep Source Review. My name is Thane Colmorgan. This will be for an upcoming discussion between Bill Gertz and Victor Xi on U.S. policy towards China. So in this one, I'm going to review two national security viewpoints uh, regarding China. One would be China Hawks. The other would be China Doves. Uh, the Hawks are obviously more aggressive, uh, more hardline, and the Doves uh, being a little bit softer or less aggressive. So I'm going to start with the doves because I would say chronologically speaking, it used to be the dominant way of thinking about China. Um, I think it, it basically was the way uh, the United States positioned itself, you know, kind of starting in the 90s and early 2000s and shifted maybe kind of around 2010 uh, with the end of Obama's presidency and uh, with the start of uh, both Xi's uh, Xi Jinping in China and uh, Donald Trump in the United States, I think is when uh, the doves kind of were out of style and the uh, hawks kind of became in vogue. So start with the doves first to be chronologically in order. So the doves kind of start their thinking. Uh, it, it's premised off of uh, liberal, liberal internationalism, uh, which is this way of looking at foreign policy that says, hey, look, we want to create uh, liberal institutions, uh, both at the global level and then at the uh, national level in you know as many countries as we can across the world so it's sort of an idyllic uh, ideology based uh, policy and you know it wants to go if, you know people kind of remember like we we want to go to afghanistan and iraq and basically do some regime change there and have it become a liberal democracy um, this was kind of the goal and it's really something that uh, kind of started the, the sort of intellectual founder of this are the neoconservatives, uh, Robert Kagan is another one, and then Francis Fukuyama. There's actually, I think this should be a uh, beer drinking game that everyone, every time in either a politics or uh, geopolitics discussion, people talk about Francis Fukuyama and the end of history, you should take a shot because it basically is mentioned in almost every one of these. But Basically, that's the idea. And I think the reason why this idea made sense or was in vogue at the time was that the United States has, had basically defeated communism. It was the global superpower that couldn't be matched by anybody else. Uh, and there were a few instances where it actually worked pretty good. Uh, so at the end of World War II, uh, Germany and the rest of Europe really kind of became democratic. There was no more you know, fascist kind of impulse in the region. Um, Eastern Europe at the end of communism kind of went that way. Um, bits of Asia also went that way. Um, Korea and Japan also, uh, they all kind of became liberal democratic and joined the liberal international order. So there was some impetus for this working. It obviously didn't work everywhere, but the idea was that, uh, this was going to be tried with China. Uh, communism was kind of going out of style there, or at least that's what the thinking was. Once Mao was gone, uh, Deng Xiaoping, was uh, more open. He wanted to do reforms, open up with the rest of the world, uh, kind of make their economy more f more free market and capitalist oriented than it was. And so the, the prominent thinking was like, hey, like they're actually kind of going along with this. They've pivoted away from Russia. They've kind of interacted with us more. They want to be like us. They want to become uh, liberal and democratic. Um, and so that that's kind of how things went for a while. Uh, Clinton uh, in the 90s was big into this. Uh, it was continued with uh, Bush after him. And this really began to change, I'd say, kind of like during the Obama presidency. But uh, 
the point was, you know, if we engage and share technology with them and just open ourselves up to them economically, uh, they will eventually become uh, liberal Democrats, just like the rest of us. Um, that obviously didn't happen, uh, or excuse me, didn't happen. And so that's kind of where I'll shift now uh, to talking about, well, I guess one last thing I should say is there is this transition period between the, that dovish way of thinking, which says like, hey, we don't need to worry about this militarily. Uh, we just need to engage with them. Uh, there was kind of a recognition. There's been some papers and stuff that had come out in uh, the early 2000s by some of the more hawkish Chinese. Uh, and then also with Xi coming to power, it began to start looking like maybe they weren't going to be as democratic as everyone was thinking. And so there was, I, I think, this sort of period of time uh, where there was like a wait and see mentality. People didn't want to build up a military to respond to what looked like kind of a threatening development over there uh, because they didn't want to create a self-fulfilling prophecy. So there was sort of a transition period of like, let's just sit and wait and see what happens here. Um, and I'll get into this later, but there were, there are also multiple factions in China that have different outlooks on how they want to operate. Uh, so there's some credibility to why they would have thought that. But uh, the point is, Basically, with Xi Jinping and uh, Trump coming to power in both countries, respectively, uh, the hawkish attitude starts to take over. And the hawkish attitude basically looks at China and says, hey, look, uh, they actually were never going to be liberal and democratic at all. They played us just like they played uh, Russia. They said, hey, oh, yeah, you know, we're going to we're going to participate with you guys in the ideology that you work with. And, you know, we'll we'll work with you. Uh, but really, like. And then they did that, you know, with the United States. But the whole point is like they just kind of did that for their own self-interest. And they really never had any intention of uh, going along with either of these ideologies, both uh, Soviet style communism before and uh, United States liberal democracy uh, kind of more recently. So uh, the hawk point of view sees China basically as always being out for itself and ruthlessly so if it needs to. Uh, they see China as being incredibly deceptive. They point to the art of war and the warring states influence on how China works. It basically places a premium on, uh, on, on deception rather than overt military strength to get its ways. And they actually outline kind of nine tenets. This is from a book um, called the hundred year marathon by kind of a more prominent hawk. But basically they say, look, the Chinese want to induce complacency and avoid a learning their opponents. They want to manipulate them. Uh, they want to specifically manipulate the opponent's advisors. They are willing to be patient for decades or longer to achieve what they want. They're willing to steal the opponent's idea and technology for strategic purposes. Um, they are not so focused on overt military might. Uh, they'd rather kind of sidestep their way to it. Um, they also recognize that the hegemon will take extreme and even reckless action, so they don't want to provoke it. Uh, they don't want to lose concept of Xi, which is kind of like this, um, you know, rule with a, it's, it's a complex topic, but it's basically like what it means is fundamentally just don't lose sight of the deception of the situation. Um, use uh, metrics to assess your standing and always be vigilant to being encircled or deceived. So this is kind of like the the outlook that the, the China Hawks basically see China having. And so the point is like, hey, look, they're really in it for themselves. They're perfectly willing to deceive or like play by different rules. Uh, whatever they need to gain power over the situation, they'll do it. Um, 
So, that, I mean, that's basically the hawk stance. They, they see China as kind of trying to replace the United States as the hegemon in the next, uh, well, really by 2049 or 2050, roughly, is when they, they see China wanting to do this. And they basically say that China has two strategies for accomplishing this, which they are uh, pursuing basically in tandem, maybe at, at different times focusing on one or the other. But the first one is uh, to go from a regional hegemon to a global one. And what this says is that China will first try to dominate its own local sphere of influence uh, or ro- local sphere of geography. So that looks like um, getting kind of Southeast Asia, the Philippines, everyone kind of in line and uh, working not necessarily overtly with China or invading them, but basically they dictate how they're going to operate. It's sort of like a you do this or else kind of thing. And then once they have achieved that, uh, they will then spring past that regional area uh, to be more uh, globally dominant. So once they've kind of gotten their region, they can then move out from there and influence place, other places, you know, maybe in Africa or in Europe, etc. Um, and so it's kind of this regional to global framework. Uh, the next is actually just going straight to global. Um, and this is sort of like undermining or co-opting existing institutions, global institutions like the World Trade Organization, the UN, etc., for their own purposes. Uh, and heavily influencing them for their own purposes, and then also uh, creating their own coalitions and and frameworks. It just means like they're going to go become an international player. And whenever the U.S. sort of doesn't take that role, that leadership role, they'll fill it. Um, so another thing to look at with this is like the whole BRICS set of countries, and that's um, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, plus a few more. But the point is they're kind of trying to create this global soft power uh, situation. So <clears throat> those are the kind of the two, the two uh, ways of looking at, uh, at policy stances towards China. The doves, I think at this point are really, they're not really in style, like to the extent that there are doves, uh, they're basically just saying, hey, look, we don't want, we don't want to be too provocative and uh, make and push China to be violent or go to some sort of war. Like that would be the maybe the most dovish stance that there is right now. But I don't think anyone at this point, you know, no one predominant thinks that China is just kind of like, you know, going to be like any other country and and be willing to work with the international system as it currently stands. I think people are mostly convinced that China is not really having that. And uh, to the extent that you're dovish, it's just how much you're willing to go to be provocative or not uh, in stopping that in China. Uh, but I think that the prominent viewpoint is like, hey, we need to create a coalition that prevents them from being a regional hegemon and we can't let them. Uh, undermine international institutions. That's kind of the U.S. Uh, stance at the moment. Uh, so anyway, that's those are doves and hawks regarding China. Um, and we'll have one more prep video after this on uh, China and how and what their schools of thought are. Uh, but that'll be coming up next. Thanks.